Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, a show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm your host, Ted Miller, Senior Vice President of the Cancer Support Community. For more than 35 years, we at the Cancer Support Community have been a relentless ally for anyone impacted by cancer. We help individuals manage the realities of this disruptive disease and get back to normal. Please go to cancersupportcommunity.org to learn more about our support services that are all led by professionals and validated by scientific experts. Today's episode is something that really we started a journey is about a journey that we started with you, our listeners, about two years ago. It's about an important topic in the health system that can impact all of us, regardless of our medical condition. That topic is utilization management. Now, this terminology may not be familiar to you if you're listening to us for the first time, but you probably heard about words associated with it, like prior authorization and maybe even step therapy. This conversation is important for patients, and this is why the Cancer Support Community's Cancer Policy Institute recently brought together more than 100 healthcare professionals, patient advocate organizations, and other leaders for its third annual Summit on Utilization Management. This year's event was was special because it focused in on examining how utilization management practices can increase health disparities, a key topic that is really driving the healthcare conversation across our country. And we're, the summit was led by my colleague, Felicia L. Woods, who I'm thrilled to say is here with us today. And Felicia is going to help us do three things as we go through this uh, episode of Frankly Speaking About Cancer. The first, understand utilization management and how it plays out in their everyday lives. Second, we're going to hear from Felicia about the themes from the summit, especially opportunities to help advance health equity and some of the key pieces of information we learned from the experts she assembled as part of this summit. And then third, spoiler alert, we're going to end the show with practical ways that you can be a champion for yourself and the people you love uh, in your in your life who are experiencing medical conditions and whom for whom utilization management might be a barrier to their uh, ability to get uh, to get the health services. But before we get started, let me tell you a little bit about our special guest. Felicia serves as the executive director of our Cancer Policy Institute. In that role, she oversees all aspects of legislative, regulatory, policy, and research priorities, as well as operations, fundraising, and management. And on any given day, Felicia Felicia can be talking to the White House, congressional leaders, or others about ways to make our health system better and more equitable. Most recently, Felicia was a director of federal relations, the American Cancer Society Cancer Action Network. Formerly, she was counsel to former Senator Claire McCaskill on the Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee, and she also served as health counsel on the U.S. Senate Special Committee on Aging. But before working in the Senate, Felicia served as a Peace Corps volunteer, as well as a legislative assistant to former Congressman Russ Barnahan of Missouri. She earned her law degree at the University of South Carolina School of Law and a Master of Social Work and a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology from St. Louis University. Felicia, it's great to have you on the show. We heard a lot about Missouri in that introduction, but I understand <laughs> your hometown actually starts with another M. Do you want to give our listeners, a sh- do you want to give a shout out to anyone who may be listening from Western Tennessee? 
sure. Thanks for having me on the show today, Ted. And yes, a lot about Missouri. I was even thinking that when you were reading my bio. I am originally from Memphis, actually, so the home of Elvis Blues and Barbecue. So it's great to um, be here and represent my hometown, Memphis. And of course, shout out to my parents who are probably listening. Oh, my goodness. Well, hello to the Woods family, all the Woods family and all of your fans in Memphis, and of course, in, in Missouri, Felicia. But uh, so today, I guess we're going to have a really conversation. We're going to ask as if we're having some Memphis barbecue, right? And we're just like chatting. We're just like kind of going back and forth about uh, some of the, the key issues with utilization management. I've been to Memphis. It's a fun town. People really know how it's an incredibly hospitable and fantastic place. Great music, great blues, of course, and as well as the barbecue. Although as a Kansas City, and I might contest whether it's their capital barbecue, but we'll leave that for another. We'll leave that for another <laughs> show. But but today it's utilization management. So I'm I'm going to start off with just asking asking you, you know, you what is it, and you know, from a big perspective, and they'll go into specific things that you know maybe words or. Uh, sort of terminology that people may be more familiar with, but just take it away and tell me about the utilization management. Yeah, sure. Happy to do that. You know, to really understand utilization management or UM for short, it is important to recognize that healthcare costs in the U.S. are continuing to increase. And we know that cancer care has nearly doubled over the last decade, which You know, one can speculate that costs will also continue to increase if we don't truly get a handle on the issue, especially right now as we're trying to really understand and navigate COVID and the world that we're currently living in, trying to manage a global pandemic in addition to helping people truly get access to the services, healthcare services that they desperately need. Now, UN practices are one of the ways uh, that healthcare organizations like insurance companies or pharmacy benefit managers, uh, used to really just address the cost of healthcare. UM practices take different types of forms. So some of the audience may know these practices like step therapy and prior authorization, which you talked about a little bit at the top of the conversation, and we'll dig into deeper. Um, But these techniques are really focused on managing costs by changing or influencing a patient and provider shared decision-making about the need of what's appropriate of care when it comes to prescription drugs or, you know, imaging testing like MRIs and PET scans and CT scans and also medical devices. But unfortunately, in many cases, these UM practices can really negatively affect patients' access to care, you know, and create a lot of burdens for doctors and providers too when you think about time that they have, the doctors and providers have to spend talking to insurance companies about these techniques. So those burdens can lead to delayed access and much needed treatments and therapies that our patients really desperately need. You know, I'm proud to say that the cancer support community leads the way in making sure patients are at the center of all treatment decisions. And while, while we also understand and respect the efforts of the healthcare industry to control costs, At the end of the day, we need to make sure that the patients are at the core of those decisions. And we're not just really looking at financial risk, but truly looking at, are we creating better health outcomes for the patients that we're serving? So Felicia, you mentioned a lot in that that's so important because I think all of us can understand that when we're in our doctor's offices talking to our nurses or our healthcare team, we're in a room and we're going through the options. But then you, you, the way you explained is like, 
there are a lot of other people who aren't part of that conversation who play a key role in determining ultimately what's going to happen. And so I, I, one of the words that I saw, one of the phrases I saw in this is prior authorization. Can you walk, tell me, you know, where, where, what, what, what kind of, what, what is number one, what does that mean sort of in practical terms? And is it something that, you know, for some of our listeners that they, you know, what can they do to kind of identify it if it somehow in, interferes with their healthcare access? Yeah. Sure. And I'm happy to give, you know, my own personal story. I was most recently at uh, the pharmacy counter trying to pick up a prescription and the pharmacist who was trying to assist me was like, you know, I think you need to call your insurance company because there is a prior authorization here that wasn't met. And so imagine I'm waiting for this uh, prescription drug that I need to take because my doctor said I need to start it that night. And now I have to go through the hurdle of calling my insurance company, which it was after hours. So I wasn't sure if the insurance, um, if the staffers would be able to pick up the phone or not. But luckily, my pharmacist found a workaround. And, you know, that's because he was willing to just take the time to talk to talk me through it. But just, you know, that personal story really affected me because I'm thinking, you know, the work that we do at CSC is all about this, all about educating the patient. So taking a step back, you know, prior authorization is really a common practice used by insurance companies. You know, it happens when a healthcare provider or nurse, doctor or staffer needs to get approval before they can prescribe something to a patient. So the insurance company, in essence, has to agree to pay for this medication or procedure before the patient receives it. So the purpose of prior authorization may be to ensure appropriate treatment. But it also has some negative impacts because there's there could be delays in treatment or changes in what the doctor and the patient agreed to during their visit, you know, unexpected costs or really worst case scenario, a rejection of what the recommended treatment or service that the patient went and talked to their doctor about. And honestly, if this happens, we there are ways to get around it. There's patients and doctors can appeal these decisions, but that's another process. And yeah. it, that would be a, a different radio show topic for us to discuss the appeals process. And Felicia, you mentioned that too, because you said you have to kind of, so you, you needed it quickly. You needed the prescription quickly. So a lot of people listening to this um, episode may be thinking that's pretty dramatic. If they, if you, if it wasn't, if they're not an expert in healthcare like you, what are they going to be doing? You know, in terms of, you may not know to work with the pharmacist or go around those things. So is it, in terms of prior authorization, is that should that be on the list of questions that they ask when they go into the dot when there's a treatment prescribed or a prescription prescribed? Is that something you'd tell people to put on your list? Because could they you know have their healthcare team help intervene before you go to to the counter at the pharmacy? Yeah, I think it's definitely something that uh, you can you definitely can talk to your healthcare provider about, and really talking to your provider is key. Oftentimes, providers have an idea if prior authorization is needed for a prescribed drug, procedure, or service. And patients can also call their healthcare insurers directly if they are thinking that there could be some type of hurdle that they may have to go through to get this uh, drug. So they can call the insurance company too. Gotcha. Felicia, we have a, just a couple of minutes before our first break, and I know that there's just so much to cover on this topic, but can you just summarize something else that I read about utilization management and, and some of the notes about you never want to hear the word fail in the 
in the same sentence as healthcare and fail first and then step therapy. And, if, and we can get started to that and tell listeners we'll cover it in the next segment. But is that something also that happens within the utilization management uh, sort of structure? Yes, I think I think step therapy or fail first or try and fail are really a common practice, just like prior authorization that a lot of patients know. And it's a policy where a patient is required to try an alternative or less expensive drug or therapy. And usually that less expensive product may not work well. And all, and if the product does not work well, only then will the insurance company cover the originally prescribed product that uh, the, the provider originally um, decided would work best for the patient. And so a patient starts on a lower cost step and they move up to a higher cost step. And with these step therapy policies, patients may start taking a therapy that is really just different from what their doctor originally prescribed. And that can cause some delays in the most appropriate treatment and really increase distress and sometimes unexpected costs that the patient has to pay at the pharmacy yeah. counter. So we've got delays and distress. So we're on a roll here with, frankly speaking about cancer. We're going to be back, but we're going to have to take a break. But before we do, I want to thank Amgen, Bristol-Myers Squibb, and GSK for being generous sponsors of our recent Utilization Management Forum. Thanks so much, and we'll be back in a few minutes. I'm Bill Schaefer, and this is today's Cancer in the News. Regular exercise can reduce a woman's risk of cancer, but the benefits may be diminished if she gets too little sleep, researchers said on Monday. The study, involving 5,968 women, confirmed previous findings that people who do regular physical activity are less likely to develop cancer. But when the researchers looked at the women ages 18 to 65 who were in the upper half in terms of the amount of physical exercise they got per week, they found that sleep appeared to play an important role in cancer risk. Researchers discovered that those who slept less than seven hours nightly had a 47% higher risk of cancer than those who got more sleep among the physically active women. While additional studies need to be done to clarify how getting too little sleep may make one more susceptible to cancer, there is no question that getting adequate sleep has been long associated with health. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention calls sleep loss an unrecognized public health problem, saying Americans are getting less and less slumber. The CDC said the percentage of adults reporting sleeping six hours or fewer a night increased from 1985 to 2006. Sleep experts say chronic sleep loss is associated with obesity, diabetes, high blood pressure, stroke, cardiovascular disease, depression, cigarette smoking, and excessive drinking. In addition, research has shown that people who get regular exercise have a reduced risk of breast, colon, and other types of cancer. Experts think the effects of exercise on the body's hormone levels, immune function, and body weight may play an important role. In other news, scientists say drugs used to control diabetes may lower the risk of prostate cancer. Recent studies have reported a decreased prostate cancer risk for diabetic men, although it is currently unclear whether use of anti-diabetic medication affects the association between diabetes and prostate cancer. Researchers studied a group of men that were diagnosed with prostate cancer and a group of control men without prostate cancer. The total number of subjects comprised nearly 50,000 individuals. Oral diabetes drugs were used by 7.5% of the men with prostate cancer and by 8.4% of controls. The prevalence of insulin use was 2.5% in the cases and 3% in the controls. 
Men who had a history of taking any diabetes medication had a 16% lower risk of prostate cancer. The decreased risk was comparable for all anti-diabetic drugs, including metoform and insulin. The investigators found that the overall risk, as well as the risk of advanced prostate cancer, decreased with the amount and duration of medication use. While the potential mechanism behind decreased prostate cancer risk for diabetic men is currently unclear, it is very likely that the changes in endogenous hormone metabolism occurring in diabetes have an important role. I'm Bill Schaefer, and that's today's Cancer in the News. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Hello, this is Ted Miller. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're here with our special guest, Felicia Woods. Felicia Wood, Felicia and I ended the last episode talking about delays and distress in the context of utilization management. So here's what we're going to do in this segment. I think we mentioned that our second part is that we're really going to talk about why the issue of utilization management is so important to patients. And uh, Felicia, we really want to use this segment um, to talk about the forum that you recently hosted about, about a month ago, uh, and it brought together some of the biggest leaders in, in healthcare and cancer. But the focus was on health equity. So I wondered if you could just take a few minutes and sort of broaden and say how and why utilization management is, can, should be paired with health equity in that conversation. And then we can go into some of the, the leading voices and, and really the experts who you put together to really bring a focus to this topic. Sure, happy to. You know, at the start of 2021, we were thinking about what would our focus be for the UM, uh, UM Summit and really just thinking uh, in the perspective of where we are right now globally and as a country, look, examining, critically examining some of the inequities in our healthcare system, health equity just kept coming up. And we decided it's really time to focus on how some of these UM practices dramatically affect, uh, may dramatically affect the treatments that different socioeconomic groups experience, but also racial and ethnic groups experience. And when you think about it, health equity is weaved into the culture of the cancer support community. We have an ongoing commitment to examine the healthcare system from every angle to identify factors that contribute to and widen existing health disparities. So it was, it was honestly a great way for us to highlight the work that CSC has been doing in the equity space, but truly get down to the weeds of how these practices 
are, are detrimental for a lot of populations that may have lack of access to quality care or may not really understand, thinking about health literacy, understand some of the letters that they receive in the mail from insurance companies saying your treatment is del- de- delayed, will be delayed, or that provider-patient trust is always an element. When you think about UM and how patients sometimes may not differentiate between an insurance company saying you're not qualified or you may not be eligible for this procedure, we want you to try another one, versus their doctor saying something different. So it was really a goal of ours to just take a step back, look at global health equity and how um, we can really see how these techniques have exacerbated some of the disparities that are happening in um, communities throughout throughout the country. Felicia, one of the people you brought into this conversation is someone who her name is Dr. Karen Winkfield. She like is, comes from Vanderbilt. Was anybody from not from Tennessee alone to speak at, at this forum? But um, Dr. Winkfield is a distinguished scholar, has high stature within the you know the academic community and the cancer community. And I understand she's a little bit of a personal hero of yours, right? Um, in terms of what she does, but she also um, can you just tell tell us why you selected her to be the keynote speaker and what are some of the key points she make she made that you'd like to share with the listeners? Sure. We decided to uh, reach out to Dr. Wingfield because she's a renowned radiation oncologist, uh, the executive director at um, the Meharry Vanderbilt Alliance, which really focuses on doing a lot of community work. Community work with also two big um, education institutions in Tennessee. Meharry is a historically Black college university in Tennessee. Vanderbilt, as we all know, is um, a big big medical school in Tennessee, and they have a good football team as well. Uh, Dr. Winkfield was also recently appointed to the White House's National Cancer Advisory Board. She'd worked with the Biden administration on the cancer moonshot long before. And, you know, having her come in and talk about her day-to-day work, the community work that she does to really address these UN practices, but above and beyond just globally, what we need to be thinking about when it comes to health equity. And, you know, just being able to talk to her and just listen to her and what she's done in the space was truly rewarding for me, but I know it was definitely rewarding for the audience. And Dr. Winkfield also was joined by uh, Dr. Danielle Carnival, who is with the White House as well. So you got some heavy hitters at this at this, this forum. And Dr. Carnival is, is the lead for the Cancer Moonshot Initiative within the White House. D- just when you talk about people who are bringing in to the community engagement, was there anything, how did, how did, Dr., did Dr. Winkfield or Dr. Carnival talk about the importance of the work that it really is, you know, there's the, the academic research there, the data, the numbers, but how, did they talk about how it's important to put a human face to this and really talk about the practical aspects of, of what you know, utilization management means? And, you know, what is, was there any kind of key trend or topic that they really highlighted that you don't want people to, to, to know? Sure. I can really talk to you about Dr. Wingfield and some of the three themes that she covered. Um, community engagement was a major theme of, of her talk and how we really need to thoughtfully consider the patient voice. And that's something that we do at CSC on a day-to-day and making sure patients, advocates, community groups are present at the decision-making table. We can include people all day long, but if they're not actively engaging, you know, engagement cannot be transactional. It has to be ongoing and requires that everyone has a seat. 
uh, Dr. Wingfield discussed how many people often mistake community outreach with just community engagement, but we need to emphasize that we need to ask individuals what they need and not make assumptions when we go and work with people. Uh, she challenges the audience to really think beyond just the absence of disease. So like the absence of cancer, or no longer having diabetes or no longer having Alzheimer's, but really focusing on the well-being of patients. So looking at a patient prior to them coming with a diagnosis, what is their family life like? What are their social needs? What are some of the physical needs that they have or emotional or even financial? Where can we meet the patient to really help them overcome the unfortunate hurdle of a disease? And how can we help them um, in, a, in a holistic way? Another thing was patient navigation. So when you think about um, community engagement, patient navigation is a, a great parallel because it's community-based service where you're really looking at access to timely diagnosis of treatments while also eliminating barriers to care. One barrier that I can think of for a lot of patients is transportation or child care, like two things that hinder people from getting into a doctor's office to even get access to the treatments. So having patient navigators and not just nurses or social or social workers, but community leaders can help with focusing on that physical, mental, and social and financial need of the patient. And last, she talked about UM and the burden that UM has on providers, how a lot of difficulties that providers face is that they have to sit on the phone and talk to insurance companies about decisions that are made, you know, when it comes to prior authorization or step therapy. Now, after they've spent the time with their patients, and going through their treatment plan, patients get stuck with an insurance an insurer's decision to do prior authorization or to do step therapy. And that can create sometimes distrust between the patient and the provider because they're thinking, I'm going to move forward in my treatment, but unfortunately I have to take some steps back because of a decision made by the insurance company. That's such a Oh, sorry, Felicia, that's such an important when you were talking about that, too, about the transportation and some of the, of the other barriers, the whole kind of experience that people bring to the doctor's office. I can just imagine you brought up your someone going to a pharmacy counter, count, uh, counter who, for, who, for whom does, transportation doesn't exist, and they get the same, they experience what you did. Right. Do you think that they just kind of give up? And then you, I can see where they're like, well, didn't my doctor say that this was fine? And is, is part of the reason that this conversation is so important is like, do you fear that it makes some people just kind of drop out of the healthcare system and then they don't get the services they need? I feel that there's a sense of discouragement when you get those decisions or, you know, having, even when you think about step therapy, honestly, thinking about it from taking a step back, you know, I, the patient may be looking forward to that hope, it can really discourage people from that hope that I can get over this bump. I can, um, I can beat this disease in some type of way. But what really struck me about Dr. Wingfield's comments is that she was saying that so many patients are simply, we have to look beyond patients just simply surviving. We have to look at patients being able to thrive and empowering patients to advocate for themselves. And that's why it was so great to have Dr. Carnival on, on the, um, join us for the summit because she's from the White House Office of Science and Technology and Policy, but she works with President Biden. And we know President Biden has a personal connection to cancer given his son. And so she shared how 
this is important for him that he wants to, while we moved the needle in reducing cancer mortality rates, we declined in um, acceleration of the disease and progression of disease, increased cancer research and access to care. There's so much work to be done when you think about equity, creating, detecting and treating and preventing cancer. For a lot of patients of color, uh, there is still great gaps in care, great gaps in prevention and also detection. And so having the White House be very supportive of our efforts to do more when it comes to screening and do more when it comes to treatment is really helpful as we move towards trying to figure out and eradicate this world of cancer. Right. Well, Felicia, you mentioned so many that this is the conference, but there's just all the, the intersection of so many different factors that contribute to the healthcare system and in particular. And I think that this is a perfect segue for us to tell our listeners that we're going to continue this conversation in particular about equity and we're going to learn more about uh, what the forum, what kind of key themes of the forum brought to the forefront. But before we do that, we're going to take another break. Um, we're going to ha- we're going to th- thank some very generous folks who made this conversation uh, possible. Uh, so I'd like to thank our sponsors of the Utilization Management Forum, uh, Jansen, Novartis, and Merck. And so on that note, we're going to be back in just a few minutes uh, and uh, to listen more to, to Felicia about what the, the forum is and then, of course, end the program with a a checklist of things that you can do to be a great champion for yourself as well as people in your life who are affected by utilization management. Thanks so much, and we'll be back in a few minutes. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia, Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help, but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MagnoliaB or visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. 
Hello, uh, this is Ted Miller. I'm back with Frankly Speaking About Cancer with special guest Felicia Woods uh, from the Cancer Support Community. She's the Executive Director of the Cancer Policy Institute, and she is giving us insight into a term that is incredibly important to cancer patients and anyone who is in the healthcare system, and that's utilization management. Uh, Felicia, we ended our last segment talking about so many different uh, intersections between uh, utilization management, health equity, and access, and how um, how to, as, as um, one of the, the, the keynote speaker at the forum, Dr. Wingfield mentioned, how do we move from thinking, having patients just to survive, but to thrive? And that change, that uh, requires quite a paradigm shift, I think, in terms of the healthcare system. But now, another part of the forum is that you all brought together a panel of other experts. And this panel was led by our, our colleague here at the Cancer Support Community, Eukarya Borden, um, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about the per, um, you know, why you, you made that panel part of the, the forum and what were the key takeaway items you'd like them to know about uh, that part of the discussion? Sure, happy to. So as we were thinking about uh, the summit and what we wanted to highlight, I felt it was important to go beyond just cancer. Because as we think about patients, many of them present with comorbidities, meaning they are uh, managing more than one uh, disease. So some may have cancer, some cancer and diabetes, cancer and Alzheimer's. It's just a a whole host of different diseases that people could be trying to manage and understand at the same time. So with the summit, which was um, the, the, I'm sorry, the panel, which was moderated by Eukarya Borden, we had Dr. Adrian Simmons from the National Viral Hepatitis Roundtable, Dr. Gary Puckren from the National Minority Quality Forum, Krista Nelson from the Association of Community Cancer Centers, and Dr. Surya Singh from Singh Healthcare Advisors, who was also a former CMO of CVS Health. So all are very much so thoughtful leaders in the healthcare space and really understand the effects of UN practices and how they may may be widening um, our disparities gap. Lisa, was there any key theme when you talk about the despair that all of them sort of reached consensus or agreed upon and maybe said, you know, if we had, you know, there's a list of things that we can focus on. There's such a huge topic, but is, are there some key priorities we should be addressing uh, in the context of utilization management and health equity? Sure. There were there are a, a litany of takeaways that they gave us and things that we really need to be focusing on. And so I'm glad that you know, we had such a a dynamic group of people to come and talk, you know, and I'll walk through some of those common themes. Um, In particular, Krista Nelson from the Association of Community Cancer Centers focused on the need to integrate emotional, physical, and social care into cancer care treatment. Now, uh, social workers are essential to care teams and can assist doctors with providing precision social care. So that social care is that emotional aspect, that physical aspect of care. And they and social workers are tuned into patients' needs and look beyond just the physical symptoms to address those social determinants of health. Now, we really haven't dug deep into social determinants of health, but social determinants of health are really, when you think about where a person lives, where they play, the type of quality education that they may receive, all of that contributes to your health outcomes. And so for Krista, she said, we need to shift from strictly focusing on reducing cost to really address the whole patient. And I can say that that resonated with a number of our panelists, including one in particular, Dr. Gary Puckren from the National Minority Quality Forum. He really talked about how our current healthcare system is really just designed to manage financial risk 
without really examining patient risk. And, you know, you simply can't get rid of health inequities if we only focus on the finance piece. We have to move from a sick care system to a well care system in order to keep costs down. And I was just struck by that statement. And I just want to bring in a little bit about what Dr. Simmons said, because she could focus more on hepatitis. Now, think about UN practices, as we previously discussed, cancer We have no cure for cancer at this point, but hepatitis, there is a cure for hepatitis. And she talked, but she talked about how utilization management practices are still used, even though there's a cure. And it's very jarring for me to hear that because these practices are really perpetuating those systemic inequities that many people of color and other um, population groups are experiencing, even though there's a cure right at a person's fingertip. So these UN practices are not necessarily patient-centric because they're creating a barrier for the patients to really get access to what we know is a treatment that's working, that therapies that that are working. So how do we overcome that barrier? And, And that was something for us all to ponder as we move into a system that really focuses on valuing our patients and understanding our whole patients and moving beyond just looking at keeping costs down. Uh, Felicia, as you were you were talking through that, I just wrote down a note here. I'm like, even when you talk about hepatitis, where for which there's a cure, there really is no cure without equity. No matter what we're talking, right. about, we're talking about cancer, or we're talking about hepatitis, and so it's so important, you know, to really talk about sort of that. And you also mentioned, you know, going into well care. Is it well care? I want to make sure well care, right? Instead of well care, yes. Well care, and, and explain to me, like, how if if people are looking at people were so familiar with the financial transactions when people are looking at that list that they get we all get it from our insurance companies right and we we understand about a, maybe a third of what we see <laughs> we're lucky but should where should they would it be in the cases with the panelists should be that folks know that they just don't have to deal with the insurance company that there are other resources available would it be something that you know something we at cancer support community would provide or or other alternatives that they have to kind of mitigate what could be really challenging circumstances if if it looks like a foreign language to them. And, the, and it, again, we talked about, like, how do we reduce some of those barriers? What resources could they turn to? Yeah, as far as um, resources, you know, we at the Cancer Support Community are very um, engaged with our uh, constituencies and working with patients and even in our affiliate networks because, you know, we have over 170 locations across the country and 50 affiliates who really are working and that boots on the ground, uh, people who are, are serving others in the community where you have a resource, you have someone you can talk to beyond just calling the insurance company. I do encourage patients to talk to their providers, but also, you know, reach out to other patient advocacy organizations. And I just like to say, just one before we move to move deeper into the resources, is talk a little bit about Dr. Singh, who is another panelist on the on our at our summit, who was a former CMO for CVS Health. Now he gave us a perspective from the payer side, and it's rare that we really have a payer like an insurance company or a pharmacy benefit manager or somebody in the system to come and talk to us about some of these practices. So he was in the decision making chair, and he could use data to determine if 
a prior authorization policy was truly working in a patient group and was able to thoughtfully guide some of his work by using the data to show whether that requirement was really necessary and if it was truly a good thing or delaying care. And that's why we need um, diverse groups of people at the, at the stakeholder table so we can hear that interesting point that he used data to drive his decisions and, to, and for us to really think about more personalized approaches to care and not just be focused on, like I said, driving down costs, but how can we look at specific measures and interventions in our healthcare system to help all patients? It was really good to have him come on and be like, I, you know, he was an advocate uh, working, but working in a payer setting, but an advocate for patients to try and change some of those systemic practices. And it seems like, Felicia, what you really wanted to accomplish with that panel was to make sure that every aspect of the conversation or was covered and that people had, that we understood where, I guess, where people were coming from and where there could be some, I, I hear maybe some common ground or some idea yeah. about some solutions if that's, uh, if that's uh, the part of the, the forum. And I think, um, is there anything in, in terms of, do you, is this rare in, in the healthcare space, what you just described, or is it something that is happening more often, just kind of bringing these different voices together? It sounds, is that something that obviously you want to continue, but is that a new approach or are we, are we, I, or has it been happening? <laughs> I would say for CSE, it's been happening for a while. We really try yeah. to bring very uh, diverse perspectives to our roundtables um, because we can't make decisions and policy changes in a silo. Yeah. You have yeah. to reach out to the different groups who are part of the healthcare system. And as we all know, the U.S. healthcare system is very complex so there are a lot of people who wear a number of hats. So we need to have everyone at the table who is making decisions from, uh, from, this, from the patient perspective, the provider perspective, the laboratory uh, perspective, because even laboratories play a part in, in all of this as well. So I, I thought it was good for us to really reach out and stretch ourselves to have a more of a diverse group and that's one of the reasons why we focused on even including people from just beyond cancer, because like I said, everybody just isn't, you just don't show up with just, I have cancer. It could be a whole host of other medical issues that a, a patient is facing that we, again, we need to address the whole patient and not just specific targeted diseases. That's, uh, that's a great segue to our next, we're going to, uh, Felicia, we're going to go into the, the next segment uh, but to really build on what you were saying before about having all the all the voices at the table. And this next segment is really going to focus on something that I know is a particular passion for you, and that's the patient voice. And we're going to talk about how um, all of us who are either, you know, in the healthcare, in this very complicated healthcare system, as you described, um, yes. how they can really, you know, feel empowered uh, to take on uh, either champion their own cause or, or if they're, you know, a caregiver or working with parents or other family members or friends to help them through the healthcare um, sort of, labyrinth, I guess, <laughs> we've mm -hmm. discussed and talked about. So we're going to focus on that uh, when we, we come back. Um, but I, before we do that, I'm going to th thank a couple of other sponsors who made this very uh, interesting forum uh, yeah, possible. And those are our uh, folks at Pfizer and Sanofi. Uh, so once again, we'll be back with more with Felicia uh, to talk about you, you know, utilization management. And it's going to be focused on what we can all do to become champions for our healthcare. Thanks so much. And we'll be back in a few minutes.
I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices. I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you a breakaway from cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. You are listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Hello, I'm Ted Miller with the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I am here with my colleague, Felicia Woods. We're talking about utilization management, and this is the fourth segment of this very important program about something all of us who access the healthcare system should know about, and that's utilization management. Uh, Felicia, you mentioned at uh, end of the last uh, segment talking about the importance of having all voices at the table and having a basic understanding of how complicated the healthcare system is. But um, this segment, we really want to focus on sort of the patient perspective. And I, I, re- I realized that when you started the forum, and I know that folks can still you know, go to our, our website and go to our YouTube channel to see it, you started off with a patient story. Is that right? Yes, we did. We started off with um, a patient who had been uh, suffering from Crohn's for a number of years and had gone through the step therapy process, prior authorization had really lost hope in in the process because she was going to various providers and getting different answers and also, you know, struggling to continue to interact with the insurance companies. And just listening to her story just resonated because there's so many stories just like that. So many people who are taking time off work to make phone calls to insurance companies to just try and understand why aren't you covering this treatment? I just want to get better. I'm just trying to get back to having the quality of life that they were used to. And so her story was riveting in a way because it really showed how patient advocates are truly the catalyst for change. And she used the story, her story as a way to get up and start advocating for herself, ended up, ended up working um, and moving helping to move legislation through the her state legislature and ended up becoming an advocate coming up to that to um, talk to members of Congress and, you know, other administrative people about the issues that she was facing on a day to day. And I think patients are the ones that can continue to put the pressure on our current system and put the pressure to, to make the change. We need we need them because they can help us to amplify their voice. And I feel like, you know, they show us the way and how we can create more opportunities for advocacy and ensuring that patients know how and where to, where and when to engage. That's what the advocacy organizations like CSC can do by continue, continuing to educate, but also to continue to go to the community 
and talk to them about about getting them to use their voice to be that catalyst for change. And Felicia, as you talk about that so passionately about the importance of patients and that they are the catalyst for change, I imagine some people listening to this episode are going to say, oh, wow, all of this stuff is happening to me. Do you encourage them to reach out to us at the Cancer Support Community and share their story? Is that an action item that they can put on the list? Sure. I do encourage patients to reach out to us and be part of our um, grassroots network, you know, or even uh, reach out to us to just understand directly some of the issues that they may be facing. You know, they can call our helpline and I'm happy to give it out, but I feel like it's a, a long address, but you know, you can go to cancersupportcommunity.org and find the link to our helpline or even call us at 888-793-9355. And I'm sure we'll be talking about that even more as we progress through the segment, but you know, there are ways to get engaged and I would love for our patient uh, patient population to just tune in to like CSC's YouTube channel to listen to the summit. Uh, so you can learn more about um, UM and health equity. But, you know, we also have a virtual navigator that I would be remiss to not talk about. We have our Ask Ruby virtual nav- navigator who can walk you through two, about a minute to, to three minutes of what step therapy is what prior authorization is. So if all of my wonky words didn't really resonate with you, I know that Ruby can break it down to you and really get you to thinking about uh, what step therapy is and how it may be affecting you know, uh, the treatment plans and to learn more about some of the u- utilization management practices that are out there that patients can start to educate themselves about and reach out to insurance companies whenever they're faced with an issue. Felicia, as you talk about sort of that, that, that process with folks, uh, with people, would you recommend that they actually write down some of these term- terminology? And when they're talking about it, go into their doctor, or their nurse, whatever, their healthcare team, and just say, I heard this, I heard of these words. Can you, ex- is this, I guess I'm trying to say, what is it, like, is this going to affect anything? <laughs> like, is it going to really, is that, is that going to get down to that, that kind of an experience? Yeah, I think that that's helpful to write it down. You know, when you get into a doctor's office, I have experienced the same thing. I'm sure you have too, Ted. You, you, you get in there, you're like, these are the things I'm going to ask. And then somehow you forget all the things that you're supposed to ask. I, I say, write it down. Take a, a pen and paper thoughtfully and carefully write out everything that you want an answer to. And bring it up to your provider and talk, talk to them. Help let them know that you want to be actively engaged in the process and in that way, you're building and strengthening that relationship, that patient-provider relationship. And if there's ever something when it comes to like step therapy or prior authorization that you really don't understand, I think it's worth asking your doctor to walk you through that. Also, it's worth picking up the phone and calling the insurance company and asking, like, what are some of the things that my plan, my plan covers? Will you cover this treatment if it's something that my doctor offers me? You know, that is all a part of advocating for yourself and empowering yourself so that, you know, you are being an active participant in your treatment and um, your treatment and therapy. It's very sound advice on all fronts because we all get those insurance cards, right? And you turn them over on the other side, and there's this 800 number. <laughs> like, where does that really take us? But, but what you're saying is that, it, you know, it's an important thing for us to take the time to actually dial in, you know, those numbers, put it out and really 
start asking those questions. Um, is there anything uh, sort of like as we come to the, the close of the segment, the segment, statement or segment, sorry, of the last two minutes, are you optimistic about where we're going with utilization management? Where we're in a scale of one to five, five being the most optimistic, where are you and how do you think, what do you want our listeners to leave, uh, leave feeling uh, as we conclude the episode? So I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. I learned that from when I spent my days working on Capitol Hill. Uh, so I will give us a, a three and a half. I think okay. that there's more work to be done. Uh, we For CSC, we're going to continue the formal utilization management next year. Our focus will be hearing more from the patient's voice, similar to what you mentioned, Ted, earlier about having a patient advocate come on at the beginning of our summit. We want to invite more patients to the table. Patients are critical stakeholders in the UM space, and oftentimes their desires, unfortunately, are ignored. So having them share their stories at our roundtables will help our partners and diverse stakeholders see why changes need to be made in the UM space. So we're going to continue to break down some of those barriers to care by examining the health equity components, looking at the policies that we could be doing, fixing on the, on the state level as well as the federal level, and addressing these widening, unfortunately, widening disparities that are happening in our in our country right now. So I am optimistic, cautiously optimistic that we will be continuing to create that change. And I look forward to the work that the Policy Institute will do next year in the UN space. Well, Felicia, thanks again for joining us today. We appreciate your taking the time to really walk through this, this and really break down all the elements of utilization management and reinforcing the importance of the patient voice in, in this conversation. I just also want to say, as we say, as we end this uh, um, episode of Frankly Speaking About Cancer, I just encourage all of our listeners to go to cancersupportcommunity.org, learn about our resources, find out ways to watch uh, the, the video of the Utilization Management Forum that includes all of the, the great insight that Felicia shared throughout this, uh, this episode. And so we're, we're going to say goodbye for now, but uh, the conversation about utilization management continues. And Felicia, we're going to work with you to get from a 3.5 to a 5 in terms of our optimism and and so that's that's the charge you've given us, and we're going to have to take it. But thanks so much to everyone who's been listening, and uh, we'll see you next time, or talk to you next time on Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org.